Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. Listeners of our Crack Rackets shows will know there is nothing I enjoy doing more, nor perhaps anything I do more frequently on these podcasts than refer to the metrics offered by our friends over at Tennis Abstract. Now, if you are not using TennisAbstract.com already, you're sincerely missing out on the best resource in all of tennis. They offer metrics such as first serve win percentage, second serve win percentage, hold percentage, break percentage, percentage of returns put in play. All of the analytics, all of the statistics you are looking for can be found in one location and found for free on tennisabstract.com. Of course, they also offer ELO ratings. They offer a comprehensive database where you can go look up the results from your favorite players. Look up things such as how many quarterfinals, semifinals, finals have they made across various surfaces and across various levels. What are their head-to-head results with whichever players they're matching up with on any given day? It is, again, the best resource in the business to find the analytics that will help, again, match the observations you are seeing unfold day in, day out on the court with your eyes. And, of course, here at Crack Rackets, we are so fortunate to have the opportunity to speak with the man behind the website so frequently. He joins us once again on today's show. Of course, I'm referring to Jeff Sackman, who joins us on the show today to offer an update on the 2021 analytics we have seen unfold. We talk about the biggest risers in the ELO ratings. We break down the current top 15, 20, 25 clubs. Of course, that refers to the players who currently rank top 15, 20, or 25 in both hold and break percentage. We also talk about Novak Djokovic, and this was a really fun exercise. Not only do we discuss his decision to ultimately play the Olympics, but we discuss which players we think right now in the ATP game are best positioned to defeat Novak Djokovic down the home stretch. He is chasing a lot of history here to end 2021. Obviously, by playing the Olympics, he's got the opportunity to fill out his mantle. The only thing he's missing right now an Olympic gold medal in singles, of course. He's also chasing that calendar Grand Slam when all four Grand Slams in a single season would be the first to do it since Roger, uh, since Rod Laver, excuse me, would also surpass both Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal with a 21st Slam title in New York. All of you listeners already know all of that, but what Jeff and I wanted to do was discuss the players we think are best positioned to prevent Novak Djokovic from capturing that history here down the home stretch of 2021. Again, it's a fascinating thought exercise, and I would really love to hear if we missed out on any players, if there are any notable names you listeners think are the players best situated to perhaps defeat Novak Djokovic down the stretch here in 2021. But again, 
big podcast for all of you listeners. We're talking 2021 analytics. We're talking can anyone beat Novak Djokovic on today's show with Tennis Abstracts, Jeff Sackman. Of course, before we get to that conversation, I just want to quickly remind all of you listeners the reason we are able to do this day in, day out here on the GSP. And we really have gone now to two daily shows, daily GSP, daily mini break. We can go daily twice because of the support we get from all of you listeners, from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and of course, because of the support we get here from our friends at Turner Tennis. You guys already know Turner Grip's the best in the business. So I will simply say, if you would like discounted college pricing, some free samples as well, you can email sales at uniquesports.com or contact 800-554-3707. Again, you mentioned we here at Crack Racket sent you. You'll get some free samples. You'll get some discounted pricing. They'll treat you like family. Sales at uniquesports.com or call 800-554-3707. With that in mind, let's get to my conversation. 2021 analytics update, plus can anyone beat Novak Djokovic here this season with the one and only Jeff Zachman. Who's your trusted source when it comes to your facility questions, concerns, and needs? Ours is Hard True, the world's largest manufacturer of tennis court surfaces, equipment, and accessories for over 90 years. Partner with their trusted team of experts, along with collegiate greats Jamie Loeb, Alex Rybakov, and Dustin Taylor to bring the service provider of over 30 professional events annually to your facility. Whether it's the red clay of the Houston ATP, the green clay courts of the Charleston WTA, or the official hard court of World Team Tennis, Hard True has you covered. If you're looking to build a court, convert a hard court to clay, or simply resurface your hard court, work together with Hard True in their mission to lead the tennis industry by creating better places to play. To learn more about their state-of-the-art surfaces, along with their catalog customizable on-court accessories, check out hardtrue.com or call 877-442-7878 today. That's hardtrue.com or 877-442-7878 today. Joining us on the podcast once again today, a returning champion here on our Crack Racket shows. You know him as the host of the Tennis Abstract podcast, host of the Expected Points podcast, fellow board member of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club, and my friend, Jeff Sackman. Jeff, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? Uh, It's another day in paradise, and I have to say, I think I've been riding the wave of the Arena Sabalenka semifinal for the past six, seven days. It's felt good to me. How we feel, I'm you know, as a fellow co-leader of the Sabalenka bandwagon, how we feel in in the post-Wimbledon aftermath, I'm still feeling good. Well, I have to tell you, I, I I slept through most of the weekend, so she did win the tournament, right? (laughs) Semifinals is a win, is what they're saying nowadays. Yeah, I mean, it, it's good to have that whole narrative shut down, right? I mean, I never really thought it was some kind of mental problem or something that would last her whole career where she wouldn't succeed at slams. But it's been, it had been long enough that you started to wonder, even even hardcore fans like us, like you couldn't ignore it. But now, 
I mean, now I guess the story will be she'll be a number two seed or a number three seed who hasn't reached a final, but that's a much smaller issue and one that I'm sure she'll address a in a couple months. A running theme over the past few days, we've been talking about the Caroline Wozniacki belt here at Crack Rackets, which is the heir apparent, the player who has yet to win a Grand Slam, who is best positioned to be the next player to win their first title. And, you know, for the longest time, the reason it's called Caroline Wozniacki, she reaches number one in the world from 2010 to 2018. She doesn't win a Grand Slam. Felt like after she won her first, you know, Simona Halep captured that belt, but then pretty quickly Halep gets title number one, and she hands the belt off to Pliskova. Coming into this Wimbledon, it felt like Sabalenka had kind of captured control of that title from Karolina Pliskova, but now Pliskova's like, eh, I kind of want that belt back. And, like, you know, Madison Keys will always be having a cup of coffee with that belt circa 2017-2018 version. But I think Arena's the person now, Jeff. I think she's the Caroline Wozniacki heir apparent, the one we are waiting on to next win her maiden slam. Yeah, definitely. I, I Honestly, I wouldn't have guessed she'd do so well at Wimbledon. Like, I, I, if we'd had this conversation a month ago, I might have said she held the belt for New York. Um, but obviously if she can do this well at Wimbledon, then the, the typical outdoor hot weather, hard court is her prime metier. So if she can play this well at Wimbledon, then her on a hard court is, is really dangerous stuff. And, and yeah, I mean, obviously I feel like if, if someone is so high ranked, whether we're talking about ELO or the official rankings, then I mean, we're basically saying, that their that's their approximate probability of winning a grand slam all this all this mental stuff about succeeding or not succeeding in slams is generally not it's not that real of a thing so if someone is number two or three in the rankings or that close to the top without having a slam then of course yeah they're the they're the they're the heir apparent yeah. to that list all good points of course you look at the advanced metrics arena sablanka top five in both overall elo 2021 elo she's your wins leader since the tours resumed in august she is a top 15 club member and speaking of which quick tangent before we get into today's topics i have the updated top 15 top 20 top 25 clubs which our listeners know are players who are both top 15 top 20 top 25 in both hold percentage and break percentage according to tennis abstract stats leaderboard on the wta side jeff and i want to run you through both the men's and the women's side right now just to get your thoughts as tennis abstract i don't know if people know it's your website um but you look at the top 15 club right now on the women's side there are four women who are top 15 in both hold and break percentage it's Iga, it's Muguruza, it's Own Jabour, and it's Arena Sabalenka. Given what we've seen unfold over the last 52 weeks, Jeff, that feels right. Like, those are the four players, week in, week out, day in, day out, who it's felt like, if you break the last year into fourths, like, those are the four who have meant the most. I uh, I would have been so surprised if you'd said Jabour, I don't know, a couple a couple months ago before before she won her grad score tournament. I had kind of a similar reaction when I got my first look at the ELO ratings after Wimbledon because there's this section of the ELO ratings, number number eight, Krachikova, number nine, Jabour, and number ten, mm-hmm. Coco Goff. And all three of those, I mean, obviously they belong there, and you wouldn't question them now, but just imagine. Imagine having a conversation with someone in 
April or something when we're, when the tour is in Charleston. That oh yeah, did, did, you want some top ten players? Give me Krejcikova, Jabour, <laughs> and Goff. Like okay, Goff, you could you could see where that was going. Eventually, you might not have thought she'd get there quite yet. But I mean, it's it, it's wild how fast things can change. And with Jabour, maybe it's just because she doesn't have the the signature moment like Krejcikova's Grand Slam or some of Goff's breakthrough moments, but I I don't entirely get it. Again, I'm not questioning that she's she's great because obviously she is. She's not only fun to watch, but she gets the results. But can you can you explain to me, Alex, what makes her what makes her essentially elite on both sides of the ball? I mean, so it it's tough for all three of those players. Again, Krejcikova, Jabour, Goff, they're all interesting cases. And it's funny you look at the top fifteen club and the top. Tw- you want to expand that to the top twenty, top twenty five club. If you go to twenty five, you get Krejcikova. Uh, if you go to top thirty, you'd get Goff, who's not elite at any skill, but is getting better and better at everything. I think it makes sense for. For both of them, I mean, uh, for all three of them, really, and just to to start with the golf piece, I see it. Like, if you ask me who has been one of the breakthrough players of the last 52 weeks, if you look at Coco Golf's results specifically, 39 and 18 over her last 52 uh, weeks, at 68% win percentage, she gets that title in Parma. She's made, and she was one of six players. It was Krejcikova, and I'm going off the top of my head here, so I apologize if I missed someone. I believe it was Krejcikova, it was Jabour, it was Goff. I think there were six total players who made the round of 16 of both Wimbledon and the French Open. And, like, again, you look at the consistency for Goff, who I believe has played 19 events since the tour resumed back in August. She's made the quarterfinals in seven of those events. That's the epitome of consistency. Like, that is the sort of thing that gets you into the top 20, into the top 10, and why she's probably hovering at that number 10 range is, A, you know, some of the victories she's had have been over top-notch players, and, you know, she's beaten a Jabour. She's beaten uh, She's beaten a Sabalenka, I believe, as well, right? If we go back to Lexington when they played early back then, and, you know, God— I just think Goff's competed extraordinarily well. She's played a bunch of three-set matches. She's sort of a litmus test right now. Now, 10 might be a little bit high, but, I mean, we've seen upside, perhaps, of other players in the WTA rankings be a little bit higher than Goff's right now. But week in, week out, Goff is bringing that sort of top 20 top 15 consistency where you mix in a title, you make second weeks at back-to-back slams. That's your recipe for being a top 16 player, right? Yeah, absolutely. And looking at the the list of players after that, like that, that's the thing. I think it's even more dramatic on the men's list. But once you get to the bottom end of the top 10, it's really – I constantly hear people say like, oh, I'm not sure he or she's a top 10 or it's like – if you're if you're thinking those terms, you're probably getting it wrong because whoever is number nine almost never seems like a top tenner. I mean, that's that's like the Jeff Sackman law of Yanko <laughs> Tipsarevich. Uh, there's always people like that, and especially right now with such an even field on the women's side, like if you go even even through the entire top thirty, like in on the Elo is Krejcikova is number eight, but then from Jabour at number nine down to I don't know, let's say Kudermatova at number 30. That entire list is full of people who have 
I think without fail made a deep run or two, maybe won a couple tournaments, had some good wins, but were not super consistent. So I mean, tell me the difference between Jabur and Goff at nine and 10 and Azarenkis Fidelina, 14, 15, or Mukova Rybakina, 1920, or even 29 and 30, Andreescu Matova. It all feels pretty similar and i mean in in elo terms it's less than 100 points so that's less than the gap between jabour and simona halep i mean and that isn't terribly <laughs> meaningful but i mean it, it, it's it's nothing huge so it, it, it it's almost like being at the back end of the top 10 is is an honorary title it doesn't mean being top 10 isn't that different from being top 15 or or top 20 so i, I don't put a ton of stock in that but he, here's a here's another question for you thinking about jabor and goff um both have been in that class they've been consistent although aside from jabor's grass court title they haven't had the really marquee stuff happen to them lately but we've been on natural surfaces for the last three months or so. And Jabur seems like if there's such a thing as a natural surface specialist, it feels like Jabur might be that person now with skills that work on clay and grass, but maybe not as effective on hard courts. Jabur is 45 and 18 since the restart overall, but only 19 and 10 on hard courts. So it's not, a, it, it's not horrible, but it, if she were winning only three of five matches or I think that's about right. Winning about 60% of her matches on all courts instead of just hard courts, she wouldn't be ranked in the top 10. Whereas Goff, I feel like she's she's poised to break out and she she should be a hard court star. So if if Jabur is ahead of Goff right now, do you think it's going to be we're gonna have those two in the same order after the US Open? Well, couple of things to that and it would it would bother me the six players who made round of 16 of both Wimbledon and the French Open were Jabour, Goff, Krajikova, Rabakina, Bedosa and Sviantek. Iga Sviantek by the way your only women's player to make the round of 16 at all three Grand Slams this season to the Jabour point what's so frustrating to me and you look at the Elo you know she is someone she's number four right now in 2021 ELO ratings. I think that speaks to her consistency. She's third in overall wins, trails just Sabalenka and Mertens since the tour resumed in August. To be honest, I expect her to stay above Coco Goff during this time span because despite, you know, I, I just don't think there's anything in Jabour's profile that would suggest that her game's not going to translate to hard courts. And I understand, you know, again, 19 and 10 thus far on hard courts, but isn't that a product of a small sample size? Like sub-30 matches on hard courts, particularly given how many hard court events there are? I feel like her winning, and you know, right now 19 and 10, it's about a two-thirds win percentage. If I tell you she's going to make, winning two wins an event is about a quarterfinal status. If I tell you she's going to make the quarterfinals of, we'll say, Rogers Cup, we'll say New Haven, and we'll say round of 16 at the U.S. Open, that, like... For, I think that's very much in the realm of possibility for Own Jabour. I also think that's very much in the realm of possibility for Coco Goff. I don't look at either of them and think, oh, that person is particularly well positioned for a breakout. I think they're both just really good. They're both players that are going to be in the mix. And, you know, I'd say the Goff serves a little bit bigger. Jabour right now can do a, a, a few more things on the court and probably just a little bit stronger right now. I like it. No, I, I think the margins are pretty thin. I think those are two players who are close. And right now, Own Jabour, like, again, 
Elo four uh, in twenty twenty one overall. Elo, she's number nine. She's ranked number twenty three in the WTA rankings. That's the most absurd thing. That Own Jabour is not currently a top twenty player. That Coco Goff is not currently a top twenty player. That's why I refer to the Elo rating so frequently on this podcast and on Twitter because, just like respectfully, that's incorrect. But I don't think either one of them is top 10 right now more than the other. I think both of their levels are pretty similar in that in every tournament they play, they can beat whomever's on the other side of the draw. That's fair. Yeah, I guess looking at Jabor's career results, that's the thing we have to do every time a player records such a big improvement. And at tour level in her career, she was barely 50-50 on hard courts before the restart. So I think you're right to say, okay, 30 matches on the hard, it's not a huge sample. We can't draw any serious conclusions from that. But if we look at the entire career and say, okay, she's winning as many matches as she's losing, it, it, it that puts the burden of proof on saying she's going to be able to keep doing what she's doing. And from what we've seen, like you say, a round of 16s at two slams in a row, like there's a lot of evidence she can i guess that's where my skepticism comes from is every time someone emerges in mid-career like that you're always kind of thinking is this the real deal is she going to keep this up is this just going to be a single surface phenomenon where with Goff, i feel like we're all just sitting back thinking it's a matter of time maybe maybe she's not going to make any more steps in 2021 but whether it's the U.S. Open this year or the U.S. Open in 2025, she's mm-hmm. going to win one. I mean, she's she's probably going to be at the top of this list. It's just a just a matter of what kind of time frame mm-hmm. you're thinking. No, my about. my favorite right now stat. It's very very random, but overall Elo 2021 Elo WTA rankings all have Elena Rabakina at number 20. Like there's just consistent agreement. She's like, <laughs> all right, 20, 20, cool, cool. All right, we're going to go with 20. And so it's always funny when those numbers end up evening out. But uh, just for the record, because I suppose it would bother me if I didn't finish the list, your top 15, uh, top 20, top 25 clubs right now, because I'm curious just, again, how this sounds to you. These these people being in these groups make sense to me. You look right now, top 20 club players who are, again, top 20 in both hold and break percentage, the name you add to the list Sockery, Mertens and for the first time Ashley Barty into the top 20 club that return percentage up to number 20 again top 20 club to me you don't have perhaps an elite skill you're a little bit you're, you're good at everything top 20 range feels like where Coco Goff is going to end up throughout her career and you know if she gets that first serve perhaps a little bit more consistent. Maybe it's a Barty sort of top 20 club. But I feel like eventually, A, by the way, that's where Goff's going to hang out. I feel like eventually that's where Jabour's stats sort of settle. What I've noticed while doing this over these six, seven months of the season is that, that that's what the top 20 club typically ends up being, is players without that single singular elite skill, but players who do a little bit of everything very well. Isn't Barty an elite No, server? she's the exception. That's what I'm saying. Because the one-handed backhand, right? She's oh, okay. an outlier. And so that return, I suppose there was some variance. But I also expect Barty to sneak into the top 15 club because I think she's elite at everything. And it's the—I'm not looking at the list, but it's her return that's not quite it, near the, the top, return right? percentage is 20th, I believe. Hold percentage, she's second, right? Or, or she's third behind Osaka and Brady. Okay, that make that makes sense. Like, I, and maybe you saw this on Twitter. I, I I did something with returns in play, and I was 
you don't really think of Barty as being an elite returner, but she was at the top of all sorts of leaderboards during Wimbledon in terms of getting the ball back in play. And it, it's, I, I never know quite how much to read into that because I have studied this a little bit in the past. I don't think I've written it up, but there's not a whole lot of benefit in returns in play. Like there's, there's probably some psychological benefit and psychological benefit against your opponent. But for the most part, players who get a really large number of returns in play, they end up losing more of those because it, it, it's not like they're getting as many neutral returns. It's like uh, when other players are swinging and missing or, or going for broke and missing or whatever, like the players who get a lot of returns back, they're hitting really weak replies. So they're just giving their opponents more plus ones and stuff like that. So in general, like just getting more returns in play is not a great thing, but it was so impressive because Barty was close to 90% in tour tour average for Wimbledon was like 70% and she was getting 90% in back on grass. I mean, that's the slice is not the, the most effective shot for winning points, but it's, really remarkable what she was doing i wish you could see my face right now and it's just lit up the idea and for the record for you to presume i haven't seen the charts you've been posting come on you know the tennis abstract (laughs) twitter feeds one of my first refreshes in the morning but um yeah it's that's so for the record if you're wondering would someone read 2500 words on that very topic the answer is yes i'm just gonna put that you have one reader right here um that's a fascinating concept to me because yeah, I, I I wonder there I, there's some sort of fallacy there that could be presumed from that theory that actually making returns is not the end all be all. At the same time, there is a mental component to that fact that it, I would love to hear coaches' perspective to hearing that numbers that there's not the biggest correlation to making return uh, making returns in play and winning more return points. At the same time. Doesn't that sound pretty intuitive? Like, if you make more returns, you're putting yourself in a position to win more return points. Like, I, that's what that's what I don't understand. I I, I see a bit of a I, I suppose a, a conflicting two conflicting things there, Jeff. Well, it's, it, I think it's it's useful to think of it the same way you think of, of yeah. first serves. It, it, on again, you can have great days or bad days on along all metrics, but. If, if someone's making 85% of their first serves, every analyst, whether we're talking about a stat head like me or a, a, a coach who's allergic to stats, they're all going to say she probably doesn't ha- shouldn't be hitting that many in. Like Unless she's just having an otherworldly Serena Williams kind of day, then 85% is too high. You're giving up something by by not hitting your, your serve hard enough to actually miss some. And... So that 85% first serve is kind of like getting a ton of returns in. If you're doing that, then you're playing for safety, not for effectiveness. And maybe it comes out in the wash. Like maybe, like if you think in Ash, in, in Ash Barty terms, maybe making 90% of your returns but only winning 50% of those points is better than only making 70% of your ter- your returns than, and – I don't know, winning 60% of those. I don't think the math quite works out there, but you get the idea. Like it's all trade-offs. So she maybe can approach a match and decide like, okay, I'm going to try to get a lot of returns in today, even if it doesn't mean attacking the second serve. But what if, what if you're Sabalenka's coach and do you tell Sabalenka, you know, I think you're going for too much on the return. You should take something off and try to get more returns in play. That's not her game. Like it, it would be like telling Sabalenka to try to make 90% of her first <laughs> serves. It's, it, 
it might work in the sense that it won't hurt it won't hurt more than it helps but it's it's not going to make her better right no i'm i'm thinking through the exercise in my head of approaching arena sabalanka and being like arena i had this idea just hear me out 90% of your first serves go in she'd be like Phew! what like genius let's do it um and so uh that's what i'd be in on um no you're you're i i understand it like it, it does make sense just because you put the ball in play like if you're sure you made roger federer's serve back but now he's got a first forehand you're just as likely to lose that point as if you didn't make the serve back and i, I guess intuitively it does make sense at the same time anecdotally Novak Djokovic, a guy like Daniil Medvedev, a guy like Alex Zverev, all top returners in the men's game. It does feel like they just put a millions return in a million returns in play, and I'm sure there is some sort of correlation to putting returns in play and having more success on in your return games. At the same time, that there's not a strong correlation. It does make sense because if you're just feeding balls up to be you know crushed back at you, I feel like this is the Jensen Brooksby theory. Like, this is what I want to see because he puts a million returns in play. Does it help him more than perhaps someone who's a little bit more aggressive on the return? I'm fine. I'm fine calling this the Brooksby theory. Sure. Okay, so if, if, you're, if you or any of your listeners are, are not convinced that returns in play can be overstated, I'm not trying to, like, rail no, against the concept of returns in play. There's, there's no, you hate there, people who make I, returns. I have... it's, it's well known about you, Jeff. <laughs> Yes, I, uh, I I hate people like Diego Schwartzman, my my favorite, my very favorite player. Okay, so one of my match charting project stat leaderboards is returns only, and this is stats from the last 52 weeks. So there's a sample size issue. Some of these players have only five charted matches from the last 52 weeks. But number one on that list, players, there's probably like 30 players here, probably 40 players here with five or more charted matches. The one with the most returns in play is Martin Fuchs. Really? And it's not even close. He's blowing Schwartzman out of the water. Hey, and he's one of the slam superstars of the year. I mean, he's having a good year, definitely. But you don't, I mean, you probably wouldn't guess that if I'd given you 20 guesses. I was going to say, he's not a top 25 guy in either serve and hold percentage or break percentage. and, And like, no, I would not have guessed that. And let's see. Actually, it, it it must be a little bit of a sample size thing, just the matches that we've chosen to chart, because he's pretty good winning those returns in play. Um, and this is actually a good place to explore this concept, because I've got on this leaderboard, I've got returns in play percentage, and then the winning percentage on returns in play. So Fucevic is getting 83% of his returns in and winning 50% of those. Again, we're talking about five specific matches. Whereas Schwartzman is is getting seventy eight percent in play and winning forty nine percent of them, both very good numbers. But you'll you'll see when you dig in that the lists are very very different. I mean, Berrettini gets sixty eight percent of his returns in play, which is it's I think it's around average, maybe a little better, something around there. And he's basically at the bottom of the list in terms of how many points he won when he got the return in play. And I think that if you told Matteo Berrettini, go out there today and just get as many back as you can, he would be able to make more. But I think the the winning percentage would go down even further because the ones he'd be, like the marginal returns in play he'd be making would be so weak. Uh, 
players would just continue Case to tee point, off on Why him. does he run around his backhand return to try to go after the forehand? Because he'd rather miss that forehand long than just put the backhand slice in play. No, I, I, again, I think that does make sense. And by the way, Martin Fucevic right now, 16th in break percentage. So excuse me, he is, you know, those bra- those returns in play, I suppose, are manifesting themselves with some success. But no, it's it, it's a fascinating concept. And again, when, uh, in tennis, perhaps more than anything else, uh, more than any other sport, you use the numbers to try and confirm what you are seeing with your eyes because tennis very much is a sport. You can very much understand what's happening in front of your eyes. Forehand, good. Backhand, bad. Cross court, working. Down the line, not working. And so, um, that it, it again, it's it's a fascinating topic that could be its very own podcast topic. But uh, yeah, it, it, when you look back again at where the metrics are at through this first third of the season, it, it's very interesting. Or through the th- first two thirds, excuse me. Um, no, I, I think across the board you start to see some evening out finally. And like right now, what I really like about the 2021 or the excuse me total ELO rankings right now on the ATP side. It does feel like we have a definitive top eight, and I know with Federer in the mix, it's a top nine. I'm not going to include him because he just doesn't play enough to be considered in the week-in, week-out mix, but right now on the Tennis Abstract ELO ELO uh, leaderboard on the men's side, number one, Djokovic, two, Nadal, then goes Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Federer, Rublev, Zverev, Berrettini, team. You then get to a Karina Busta, Raonic, Nori, a little threesome from 10 through 12. That's fascinating. But like, I, I, final thought, I suppose, before we get to our serious exercise today, I think that's your nine. Like, and take Federer out of the mix. Those are the eight guys right now that matter the most. Those are the eight guys that you would expect to see at the year-end finals in London. And it's just... It feels like with all the shifting and the changing and the various results, the generational shift, the you know week in, week out grind, we finally have our group, right? Like Berrettini has comfortably included him or has now solidified his spot in that group. And it feels like with Federer not playing as much week in, week out, you take him out, you throw a healthy team into the mix. Those are your eight. I I'm getting stuck thinking about yeah. team here because it's been so long since we've seen him play well. I I just clicked over to the ATP race and he's he's down there. He's 34th, not as bad as I would have expected, but he's pretty far out of the mix. And of course, that means you have to replace him and Federer with someone. And we've got a pretty good answer. Number eight in the race is Horkacz, and number nine in the race is Aslan Karatsev. Uh, I guess that's a very different way of looking at the question because you're basically saying 2021 performance versus career track record. But I I think I'd be very surprised to see team playing in London this year. And I would be very surprised to see him winning in London if somehow he makes, although I suppose if he, if he makes that, that means he's gotten pretty hot for the rest of the season. Maybe he made a U.S. Open semifinal or something. So if he's in London, I take that back. If he's in London, I'm I'm guessing he'll do okay. But do you think, Alex, that it's it's just it's just an injury he needs to get over? Is team going to be able to bounce back and return to and maybe not slam winning form, but return to all court successful form? That is a question I have been discussing uh, quite frequently of late, and. He is the outlier, and it does feel like, you know, it's funny, again, via, you know, another guy who's in the mix there, Cam Nori and, you know, Casper Ruud, Yannick Sinner, and all those guys are on the cusp of breaking into that top eight. Now, again, it's 
the drop-off from Dominic team who after six years of just week in, week out, pencil in those 60 matches he's going to be playing every season, pencil in the fact that he's going to win at least one clay court title and make a couple of finals throughout the course of the year. And then, you know, this season... There has just been no rhythm for him, and there have been so many different injuries, but you see him on court, and he just, he looks a little bit aimless, and you do wonder for someone whose success was so predicated on playing week in, week out, and maintaining that grind, and he's talked openly about, you know, the motivation wearing off a little bit after that first Grand Slam title, and it's a little bit more difficult now to go play that fifth tournament in six weeks uh, over in South America because, again, it's uh, A, the circumstances of the pandemic, but B, uh, it's it's just difficult to, to get up for that. And yet, you know, you do worry because of how many young players there are ascending, the Onyx Sinners, the Shapovalovs, the FAAs, the Casper Roods of the world. You can go on and on and on. The Hoopy Hercotses as well. That said, like, you know, Dominic Team's not like a 30, 31-year-old over-the-hump sort of player. Him winning the 2020 U.S. Open at the age of 27, it all checks out from a developmental curve-wise. And, like, you know, he turns 28 in December. I think he's on the back half of his prime. I think he's a guy who put a lot of wear tear on his body early on in his career. And I think that eventually will manifest itself later on. But, no, like... I, I don't think the drop-off is there. I think in 2021 he's in problems, but uh, he has some problems, but I expect him to bounce back in 2022. He's a guy whose you know, success, again, is so predicated on match play, and he just hasn't had a lot of match play here in 2021, or at least consecutive match play. Yeah, and I mean, whether it's whether it's this fall or, or next year that he pieces it back together, we really need a, a good clay court guy. I guess he's proven himself on hard court as well, but for a long time he was the most... In terms of of ELO ratings, he was the most clay. I never came up with a good word for this. His ratio of clay court rating to hard court rating was the most extreme of anyone on tour. So he was the most specialist. I don't know. That's not grammatically correct. But uh, I feel like we need those guys. There are not very many of those guys. And some of the people who we think of as being those guys, like anyone with three Spanish names, they... (laughs) They're not really. I mean, it would make sense if Carreño Busta was out there crushing it in, on clay, but he's actually just as good a hardcore player. Same thing with RBA. Casper um, the outlier. That's like the one. That's the one I that, can think of top of my head. And Garin. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Although, yeah, Garin's results puzzle me a little bit because he's he's so good in the high-altitude clay. That's where he yeah. really wins, where he can just hit bombs and, you know, hit you know one out of six surf points for aces on a clay court so it seems like that should translate better than it does but absolutely right on on root if we lose dominic team then casper root becomes the the most clay specialist or whatever better term i come up with for that no i like that most clay specialist i think works i I would lock that one in (laughs) okay mcs (laughs) yeah exactly i expect to see that on the leaderboard now but yeah, it's no again. All of this is to say, why is team still in the mix? Because no one's taken the reins. I mean, we look at it, and this can get into today's topic. And you know what we wanted to discuss here today is Novak Djokovic, and uh, you know him uh, winning Slam number three here this season, winning Slam number twenty, his th- win three Slams at age thirty-four. What this season is compared to others, and you know all of that eventually turned into how do you beat Novak Djokovic right now? Which again, we are going to get to that. That portion of the conversation here but what's so interesting 
interesting is, you know, because uh, I was having a talk with someone about the Olympics, and it was should Novak Djokovic, who's got, you know, a lot of history he's pursuing here this season. He's got the opportunity to be the first guy since labor to win all four single slams in a calendar year. At the same time, there's only one thing missing from his mantle, and that's a gold medal, an Olympic gold medal in singles. It's the last accomplishment for him to achieve. And, you know, I think it was David Kane who said this on the podcast that Novak Djokovic believes he's destined to be an Olympic champion. And one could understand if he does believe that, if you followed any Novak Djokovic over the years and you look for him, you know, again, it's such a tough choice he faces right now because on the one hand, you have the history of winning a calendar Grand Slam. And to do that at age 34 historic accomplishment winning the u.s open would be your 21st single slam it would give you the all-time lead on the men's side in the open era that's history on one hand on the other hand you look at this olympic games if you know part of me hopes novak doesn't play these olympics and he loses it so that he is forced to not retire until 2024 because if you know novak Djokovic, he's not retiring until he takes another swing at that olymp at the olympics at the same time you know, again, it's it's like, do you go pursue the Olympics? Do you try to go play the gold medal this and win the gold medal this year where you would be the prohibitive favorite? And I'm just not sure, you know, again, over the next three years, will Novak Djokovic be as close to his prime as he is right now? Mathematically, you would say the answer is no. The flip side as well, will a guy like Medvedev, like a Tsitsipas, like a Zverev, like perhaps even a Berrettini three years from now Will they have won their first Grand Slam title? Will they be the prohibitive number one player in the world? And will it be that much more difficult for Djokovic to win a gold medal come 2024? Like, it's quite the conundrum, Jeff. I don't think it's a conundrum. I mean, I, I, I can understand a player not wanting to go or wanting to rest a little bit. But, I mean, if I'm, if I'm Novak, I go, go, go. Because for one thing, you've got... As I don't know who all is is saying they're going to play right now, but we've already got some withdrawals. There will be more. There will be like we just lost Dan Evans to a COVID test, and while he was never a threat, like that's the sort of thing that can happen any day. Like any any one of these other contenders could be out, and it's going to be a, a tough. Um, it'll be a tough day to day in Tokyo. I mean, there's going to be serious restrictions again. It'll be like playing the, the bubble Australian open, maybe worse or last, last year's bubble U S open. So one, one point that Carl Bialik made on, on one of the podcasts I did with him earlier this year, which is, has really stuck with me is the champions are, are the champions because they can deal with all these other mental challenges better than anybody else. And, I generally try to steer clear of the unquantifiable mental strength talk. And I'm going to keep steering clear of it in terms of the on-court stuff, but in terms of the off-court stuff, they are, they have been so good for so long because they can withstand anything. I mean, they have serious press commitments, serious sponsor commitments. They're under so much pressure at every tournament they play in so much demand. They're traveling full-time, even when they're not um, playing on tour. So if you if you have to rank players in terms of how well they can handle the challenges that the Tokyo Olympics are going to throw at them, you can pretty much list people in rank order, maybe with a little adjustment for for age or experience. So in terms of who's going to be there, I mean, to me, Djokovic is he's even more of a favorite in Tokyo than he is uh, he would normally be according to the numbers because of because of the challenges all these other guys are going to face, many of whom haven't played in Olympics before, and then. Mm -hmm. 
he's still got a month before the U.S. Open. So if the Olympics doesn't work out, he can go play Toronto, I think it is, for the men this year. Um, mm-hmm. And then if he doesn't want to do it, he can skip it and just play Cincinnati. And after that, he still has another week, right? So there's enough time to rest as much as he needs to get some warm up on North American hard courts and still be rested for the U S open. So, I mean, is, is there, a, is there a downside I'm missing beyond just another week of bubble style struggle? Uh, that is the downside for Novak Djokovic. And that is the thing that perhaps he fears, not fears is the wrong word, but the thing that he wants to avoid most is the Olympics is just the hassle of playing the Olympics, all of the restrictions. And for him, had he lost, and uh, this was another point I believe David Kane made in our earlier podcast, had he lost a single Grand Slam event this year, it would be a no brainer. He'd be playing the Olympics, but that's not the case. He has history on the line entering New York and you just can't quantify the sort of mental taxation that would come with getting that Olympic back uh, monkey off of his back and then having to refocus once again and try and pursue more history at the U.S. Open. I think that's the immeasurable part, Jeff, is how do you factor in what winning the Olympics, the, not only the physical drain but the mental drain, what that does to him, and would he be – I mean a month, yes, in theory you think that's more than enough time, but is that enough time is the question, or is it easier to just say, you know what – Maybe this Olympics isn't for me. Let's lock in for this U.S. Open where now there is no excuse. Now I've, I'm properly rested. Uh, I'm the favorite entering a hardcore event. I've had all of these warm-up events to play as well. Uh, it, it's just it's easier to control all of, all of the external factors at the U.S. Open if you elect to skip Tokyo. I, I still don't think you've convinced me. I, I just spent the last week reading this great book called <laughs> The Secret of Golf by Joe Posnanski, and okay. it's about – Tom Watson and the, his rivalry with Jack Nicholas, and one of the points that comes up throughout the book is that these great golfers they go into tournaments n- n- looking for adversity or hoping for adversity. Like Tom Watson didn't like golfing on on sunny, calm days because he knew he was better at handling the wind than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And Jack Nicholas would always know towards the end of a round that the other other players who weren't as experienced they would feel the pressure more than he would, and he would he would let the field come back to him. And I mean, it happened. He won 16 majors or however many he won. And I feel like the great tennis players know that too. So to me, everything you're saying about the challenges Djokovic faces in Tokyo, with the exception of chasing the the golden slam, of course, it's worse for everybody else. And the fact that there's all these restrictions on media, there could be no fans. Like I know Djokovic wants there to be fans. I get it. But that takes some pressure off, I think. I mean, that that makes it feel like Beijing or something, with, which Djokovic has won 17 times. He's he can't excel in the bubble atmosphere, so he does he he does that just fine. Plus, there's a the the Olympics isn't winner take all. I mean, of course, if he go he goes, he wants to win. You're right, he's chasing history. History involves the gold, but. Novak is someone who would really care about getting a bronze or a silver and adding to his country's medal total. I think that matters more to him than it matters to a lot of the other players. So Djokovic can lose a match and still count it as a win, even if it's not the world historical win. And maybe that does take a little pressure off going into New York. And how how crazy would that be? The opportunity to go into New York with a chance at a calendar year Grand Slam thinking, well, the pressure's off. I didn't win the Olympic gold. I can't really win it all. But, you know, let's just win this one anyway. So I guess if 
if we if we take this wild hypothetical that Novak Djokovic and I share any approach to mental problems, um, <laughs> I, again, I think it's a no brainer. But I guess I I don't know exactly what where his pressure is coming from. I guess that that's the question he has to answer. But it seems like it seems like all of it is manageable, especially when he considers the fact that there's so much pressure on everybody else too. Yeah. Uh, for the record, I wasn't trying to convince you. I suppose I was trying to take that other side of the argument. Djokovic is a superhuman. I mean, for him to be doing this at age 34, one would think, yeah, a month is plenty of time. I agree with you. And Novak Djokovic has always been someone who has thrived during adversity, who likes to talk about how he enjoys the fact that certain crowds he believes cheer against him. And whether that's true or not is a discussion for another time. But, you know, again, I... I would agree with your line of thinking. I, I do think for Novak Djokovic, A, the window is never going to be more open to win this Olympic medal than now. I agree with you. He is such a prohibitive favorite entering this field. The same way he's the prohibitive favorite entering Grand Slams, the same way he was the prohibitive favorite entering this Wimbledon. Like, yeah, I I would agree with all of that. And, you know, again, that gets us, I suppose— to today's exercise here, the last thing I want to do on today's podcast, we were talking about this, and you look for Novak Djokovic, who, as mentioned, number one in total ELO, number one in 2021 ELO. He's a top 15 club guy in that he's top 15 in both hold percentage and break percentage. I believe right now he's, I want to say, 10th in hold percentage, third in break percentage. You look for him over the last 52 weeks, just a ho-humming 57 and 8 overall. He's won Wimbledon. He's won Roland Garros. He's won the Australian Open. I believe he has four titles this year next to three total losses. Yeah, it's that that that's a pretty good 2021 season for Novak Djokovic. Of course, he's doing all of this at age 34. You look for the comparable seasons in tennis history. It's like Martina, Federer, Serena, sort of. And then there's this Novak season. I guess you could go further back if you want to get to some lavers. I know Pancho Gonzalez was killing it at age 34 on the EXO series, but Novak Djokovic has clearly separated himself from the rest of the pack this season, playing some of the best tennis in his career. I think the case-in-point match we'll all turn to when we look back at this season is his 2021 French Open semifinal against Nadal, where he did turn back the clock, where he did bring out that vintage Djokovic performance. And that got us to a question we wanted to explore, Jeff. And, you know, for the record, the three players to beat him this year, Dan Evans, Four and five at Monte Carlo. The GOAT, Aslan Karatsev, seven five, four, six, six, four in Belgrade, then Rafa, seven five, one, six, six, three in Rome. The question we wanted to ponder A, you know, what does it take to beat Novak Djokovic right now? B who are the five players on tour best positioned to do so? I'll let you answer either of those questions first, Jeff. But, and, you know, I'm curious in general when you approach this exercise, what what sort of player were you looking for? What were the outlines of, you know, the characteristics you were looking for from that player? Well, we didn't specify this, but I was thinking in terms of hardcore wins. Because if, if, yeah. you, if you that's think all that's all court, it's all that's left. And it, it, it also ex- isn't my excuse why I didn't put Rafa on the list. If we've been talking about who's most likely to beat Djokovic at some point in 2022, then yeah, I mean, Nadal's probably number one on, on the list, but I don't think he's going to beat Djokovic on, on hard courts maybe ever again. So 
I, I wrote something. I I meant to dig it up and send it to you. So sorry about that. But I, I wrote something a couple of years ago for the Economist about it was after Sitsipas I think took a set from Djokovic in an Australian Open semi. I might have any one of those details wrong, so you might not even know what I'm talking about. But uh, Sitsipas played really well. This was before he'd established himself as, as one of the very top guys, and. I focused on some charting details about how Sitsipas was not only really going for his own shots, but he was attacking Djokovic's strengths. So, I mean, even though Djokovic's backhand has the reputation, you can attack that shot. His forehand is great, but you can attack that shot. Sitsipas was attacking everything. And I think that's, in general, that's a good secret to how you score an upset is be Nick Kyrgios or, or play really short points, go big constantly, take chances constantly, um, accept the fact that you're probably not going to win. So play in a way that will get you the win if you have a good day and your opponent and or your opponent doesn't. So I'm thinking players who do or can serve really big and follow that up really strong with a good second shot, uh, players who are or can be very aggressive, and Sitsipas is definitely on that list. He was the first one that came to mind. Berrettini's definitely on that list. I mean, obviously he wasn't quite there in the Wimbledon final, but I mean, in a best of three, I absolutely think he can do it. Uh, I put Andre Rublev on that list. I, he's he's a distant third behind those two, but I think he can he can win for some of the same reasons. He can come out swinging and hit as hard as anybody and serve big as long as he doesn't miss too many first serves. And then. I put Medvedev on here, partly because he'd recently beaten Djokovic on a hard court. Um, a very different model. I mean, he, he'll get his his cheap serve points, but he's maybe the only guy who can beat Djokovic by outlasting him. So he can he has the skill of being aggressive late in rallies, just waiting for the moment to pull the trigger, and then bam, he hits this wacky angle shot that you can't touch, like. Djokovic is the only other guy who does that or can do that at that level. So I put him on the list and then I was stuck for a while. And my number five choice, which is of course uh, hugely recency biased by Newport this week is Alexander Bublik. Um, <laughs> and I I'm, think I'm so happy. So I will just say Bublik is on my list as well, but I don't mean to cut you off, please. Really? He, that's amazing. Um, I think Bublik is the new the new Karlovich, basically. There were all 100%. these years. Yeah, I mean, there were all these years where people would always say, oh, I really don't want to face Karlovich. And I, it was one of my first analytical projects almost 10 years ago was looking at which players were most prone to score upsets. And I really thought going in it would be Karlovich and Isner because anyone who draws them always says, oh, that's not the kind of guy you want to face in the first round. That's a tough opponent. But basically they lose to higher ranked players the same way everybody else does. So it might be an awkward batch or unpleasant, or maybe it'll go an extra set or something, but they're not really that dangerous. So I think, I, I think Bublik is the same thing now. He's, he's not going to be a top 10 player. I don't think, but he will score those wins that I just said, aren't that common, but he he's also kind of in the curious mold. Like he can be so electric that he will just shut you down. So assuming that curious can't rekindle the magic, then Bublik is your guy to fill out the list. Sounds like you agree. Well, I just think Bublik, to your point, he's your high variance player. He, as you mentioned, is the mo- uh, he's is is a modern Isner because there's a little more spice. It's not just the serve. There are the days where he's connecting with the big returns, and he's just playing on his terms. And he hits the ball big enough to where if it's landing, 
there's not much you can do at it. And I actually had it. So I had a wild card category, and I have a little dash next to him, and I say Bublik slash Kyrgios because I think everything you can say about Bublik would apply to a locked-in Kyrgios. Now, two out of three sets, more than three out of five for him because the physical the physicality comes into play, and in particular, just as we saw, if, if it's not a f- in the first two rounds, Kyrgios becomes less and less likely to win that match. But... I think that gets to the game style you need to play, right? It's ridiculous to say, but to beat Novak Djokovic, you almost have to hit through him. And hitting through Novak Djokovic is the hardest thing in the history of men's tennis perhaps ever. But you know what's even more difficult than that? Matching his physicality. Only two people in tennis history have been able to match Djokovic's physicality. They're Rafael Nadal, who's now bald, and Andy Murray, who has two metal hips. Like, that's what happens when you try to match Djokovic's physicality. Meanwhile, Novak Djokovic hasn't aged a day since 2010, and it's just... Uh, you you have to have gumption. You have to go down swinging. You have to plan your terms because if you don't, you're going to lose anyways. And it's like you have two options, go down swinging or lose. And it's like you may lose in both of those options, but at least on the first one, you're playing on your terms. And that's why I think weapons are so important. And so, you know, the obvious name, I, I think Rub- Rublev was an interesting one to me. Why he wasn't on my list is I've just seen Daniil Medvedev camp out in that backhand corner for Rublev with success too many times. And it's like, if Medvedev can do it, I promise you Djokovic can do it. Uh, and so that's why he was left off my list. But, you know, Kyrgios type, a Bublik type, you look at their career head-to-head, I think Dominic teams like 5-7 and seven in his career against Djokovic. Now, this year's version of team, not going to get the job done, but... You know, you you do think of an aggressive baseline. Like, I'll still say to the end that Berrettini's quarterfinal match against against Djokovic at the French Open was the closest Djokovic came to losing at that event. I just thought the pressure Berrettini put on him, that serve, his forehand is a neutralizer. He's a guy who at least can play Djokovic on his terms. And even though he lost that Wimbledon final... You know, neither guy was playing their best tennis, but it was still scoreline-wise, just by virtue of the skills he has, I think Berrettini can keep matches close. So Berrettini, Bublik, Kyrgios were my power tennis players I put on the list. The other two guys, and I know this is going to be crazy to say, and Tsitsipas, he's hovering on the honorable mention just because he's so damn good, but the other two guys, and, and Sinner is probably honorable mention as well, the other two guys who I do think are in the Murray-Nadal camp. And I know it's crazy to say, but You're I do think... You're building up to Jensen Brooksby here, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Is Zachary Sfida. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, the two guys who can do it are Zverev and Medvedev. Like, I, I, go back to the Australian Open. I... Look, he's rep- personality-wise, everything he's going through, I'm, I'm, I always feel a bit reticent to continue to express pros view of tennis positions but can just I, can i start can i sorry i i i, I no, want to hear please i want to hear the end of your thought but let me tell you how i'm handling that like i think we can't not talk about someone who's in the top 10 like if, if, sure. if you're if we're doing tennis journalism or whatever it is that we're doing then he we're gonna have to talk about him to be responsible to our listeners but i agree it's 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 awkward it's unpleasant um He's not someone I'd want to grab a beer with to say the absolute uh, minimum. So every time I mention him on my expected points podcast, I I point out that there are um, 
there are domestic violence ac accusations against him. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, in, in the expected points format, uh, it's like one minute per point. So I'm not going to talk about what happened, what he's accused of, how he's responded, if he's responded. Like, there's not time for that. Yeah. But I think that's that's the bare minimum of what we have to do because what he, what the what the end goal is for someone in a situation like that, what he, the playbook that Zverev is definitely using, and is pretty much any male athlete or powerful rich person who gets accused of something like this, is to use their power to shut it down, mm -hmm. and the tennis media because of its limitations is pretty much going along with that with, with some noble exceptions, but uh, they're helping him shut it down. So it, it obviously not that many people listen to what I have to say and, and one sentence in a one minute recap, isn't that big a deal, but I won't let him shut it down. So we can talk about Zverev being a great tennis player and a threat to Novak Djokovic, but we can't do it without pointing out that he is a guy who's been credibly accused of domestic violence and is refusing to engage in any meaningful way with that. That is a perfect way of putting it. There, All of that is to be acknowledged at the same time if you're doing your job covering tennis. You can't just ignore his results on the court because he's made the round of 16 at what? His last seven slams, I think, something like that. It might be eight now after this Wimbledon and... You know, again, go back to the Australian Open. You know who really came closest to beating Djokovic? It was the Alex Zverev, who was up breaks in three out of the four sets and who just physically, he can match Djokovic. Like, I know that's crazy to say, but this version, 24-year-old Alex Zverev, I would say is as physically fit over the course of five sets. Now, again, not mentally, just physically, is as physically fit as Novak Djokovic at any point of a slam. Then you come up with the recipe. Well, you need to have the big serve to make things a little bit easier for you. On his best days, Zverev does have the serve to get the job done. By the way, you can say the exact same thing about Daniil Medvedev, who's a top, you know, I think he's the only guy who's top five in both hold and break percentage, and at one point was serving like Isner and break and serve like prime Djokovic Nadal. And, you know, again, six foot six for both of these guys, easy power. They also have that physicality element, and I know it's really obvious to say who are the guys most likely to beat Djokovic oh maybe two of the guys in the top six but like that's your list to me it's you're either you have that top tier power like a Berrettini like a Kyrgios like a I'm going down swinging Sasha Bublik or you have to match the immense physicality of Novak Djokovic and I only think two players right now in the game are capable of doing that and that's Medvedev and Zverev obviously Medvedev we saw beat him at the Western Southern Open in 2019 you look career head-to-head -head. Djokovic five and three against Medvedev he's six and two against Zverev but again they've played a bunch of close matches that was it was I think a six seven six two six four seven six win for Djokovic when they played in Australia but again Zverev was up breaks in sets one three and four like, I guess to those two postulates, and I, I don't know how else you're going to beat someone beyond outpowering them or outworking them, but it does feel like those are, like, you have to be on one of the extremes, and those are the five guys to me who qualify for either of those extremes. Yeah, I... I'm glad you brought him up. I mean, it, for one thing, I have to point out, just in case your listeners didn't notice, you said that you thought the score was 6-7-6-2-6-4-7-6. I'm looking at those results right now, and that that, that is right. I'm I'm <laughs> astonished. I'm like, I, I'd be like, I think it was four sets. Maybe it was in 2018. Uh, somewhere. <laughs> I looked at it like I looked at it two days ago for this thing I was writing. So that's why okay. it's like it's right in my mind. So that helps. Um, yeah. So so that's the most recent matchup. 
Um, one thing that's interesting is is Zverev has hit aces on 16% of points against Djokovic in their eight matchups, mm-hmm. and that includes a couple of clay court matches. So, I mean, that that's huge serving. Um, he hasn't even suffered too much on the second serve. It's not great, but it's it's not that bad. And overall, he's won 47% of points over those eight matches, which is, I mean, unless you're actually winning, that's fantastic. I mean, you're you're in the ball game. Uh, it's funny that we've kind of circled back around to this because we started out talking about Sabalenka and her getting off the um, getting off the list of players who'd never reached a quarterfinal or a semifinal. And right now, I'm just showing off that I can bring everything back to Sabalenka, no matter how far fetched <laughs> it is. But I, I feel like the way other people talk about that, I don't believe it, as I said, talking about Sabalenka, except I do kind of believe it with Zverev. Like, mm-hmm. Zverev has, let's face it, he's choked a little bit um, in some big moments, and he hasn't achieved his, um, he hasn't achieved his potential in, to the extent people would have expected maybe four or five years ago when he started winning Masters titles at such an early age. So it's, it, Someday he will break through. I, I, I always, I've probably been saying for that four or five years that as soon as the big four is gone, Zverev's going to be one of the people who starts winning slams. Well, they're still here. He's still not winning slams. So maybe he has to wait longer. He, he'll get there. I just, I have to see it to believe it, basically. Like, I don't think he's going to score a big win until he starts scoring big wins, which I know is a really stupid thing to say. But I think you know what I mean. That 100%. It, he, it, it's not a, it's not this steady, gradual thing for him. He's going to have to take a big leap. And once that happens, then watch out. I mean, if 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 he achieves all of his potential and puts that together for a full season or three full seasons, then, I mean, holy crap, he could be number one, no doubt in my mind. Uh, but I think some of the stuff we've seen with the with the domestic violence accusations, with all the issues with his his agents and managers, it 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 speaks to someone who's kind of immature. And one of the things that sets the big four apart and some of the other best players apart is they're they're freakishly mature for their age. Um, obviously not every single player on tour, but I'd say the average top player on tour is way more mature than average. And that has helped them I mean, not just get through the, the challenge of you know playing Grand Slam final, but just dealing with the day in, day out grind of the tour. And to me, Zverev stands out in the opposite direction. He seems more immature than your typical 24 year old and that might be what's standing in his way so that's my armchair psychologizing that's all i'm gonna do but i mean <laughs> so I, I i agree the game is there i i like the fact that you're saying you know the benefit of the doubt has to go to the guys who are highest in the ranking of the elo like i totally i totally approve of and concur with that logic um i i just have a little bit of a block so he's I'm not even sure he's honorable mention for me. I guess if we're just talking about who can beat Novak Djokovic at some point, then, I mean, they could play in the quarterfinals in Canada. And sure, Zverev could win that match. Fine. So I shouldn't conflate this with, like, who is going to be Djokovic in the U.S. Open final? Because that's a different question. So maybe Zverev is the guy who can who can knock him out uh, and thus remind Djokovic to take some time off before he goes and wins Cincinnati in New York. I don't know. But I, those are my reservations about Zverev. No, all completely fair. And I think in tennis, what we've learned, you have to be self-centered. It's In tennis, if you are a professional tennis player, your world revolves around you. Your training, your fitness, your eating, your recovery, everything in your tennis world, everything in your entire life has been built about maximizing yourself. At the same time, 
you can be a disciplined, self-centered athlete without being an and Alex Zverev is incapable of doing that. And it, there's a difference between being self-centered and being narcissistic. And he does not tread that line well. And again, the domestic violence accusations speak for themselves. And his relationship with members of the press speak for itself. But if I – again, from a tennis perspective, if I am – Coming out of central casting, and I'm saying, well, what is the qualities of the player I want to beat Novak Djokovic? I would say, well, I would like them to be six foot six so that they can generate easy 135 serve, uh, first serve power when needed to create some easy points. Because yes, Djokovic is the best returner in history, but you still need to be able to create some easy points. A clicking zero on serve, check. What's the next thing you want? Well, I'd like a guy who's got a nice first step, who can hang with Djokovic physically, who can go side to side with him, who can, you know, track down his ball, who certainly isn't going to be overwhelmed by his pace, because if Djokovic is overwhelming you with pace, you're not winning the match. It's like, all right, well, Djokovic, uh, Zverev's got that. He's got the length as well. It's like, all right, well, now let's get even more specific. I would really like someone who can neutralize the Djokovic backhand. If you can play Djokovic's backhand even, congratulations, you're probably one of two people in ATP Tour history to be able to say that or you're a lefty like Rafael Nadal and I know this is the crazy part but when jo- when Zverev plays his best you're like oh, okay like he can actually match Djokovic backhand to backhand and they're just pathways for Zverev and again I would say that everything you say about Zverev applies to Medvedev as well I just think Medvedev's uh, a clicking Zverev has a little bit more firepower than a clicking Medvedev and that's why he would be the slightly more dangerous of the two and that could be. I guess I I don't see Medvedev as having the same mental limitations yet because he hasn't been on as many big stages. I feel like Zverev has been on the cusp for so long that mm-hmm. not breaking through is going to get to him, or we've seen him not come through in big moments. Where Medvedev is, it's really only. And it, is it much more than a year and a half that he's been a, a real factor at the top of the game? It's been a great year and a half, but no one expected much from him before that. Uh, at least on the scale of what they expected from Zverev. So I feel like you're, you're innocent until proven guilty of having, having mental limitations. So I'm, I'm holding out hope that it won't be the case for Medvedev and you know, maybe he'll, he'll win his next slam final or something like that. Yeah, I, my my whole my only thing with Medvedev is that every so often he just gets too like he'll just play so much on his back foot and you just you can't you need to make things like there are times against in the biggest matches where he hits the big first serve and if you get that big first serve back in his service game then he's just on his back foot and like as fit as he is you cannot be on your back foot for four hours against Novak Djokovic you're just not winning that match. Can you pretty much say that about anybody? I never thought about this before, but I feel like that's one of the most, I mean, and I'm not saying it's not a valid complaint because it is a valid complaint, but I feel like you hear that about almost every player at some point. It's like if, if you don't come out with the right attitude and you just want to, you know, get yourself through a match, the natural thing to do would be to just sit back and let it come to you, which means, you know, camping out six feet behind the baseline, not going for anything too adventurous. So Maybe it doesn't happen as much for players whose game isn't so well suited to it, but I don't know. It feels like you can say that about most people. No, it's it's definitely one of those isms in tennis. At the same time, 
I think he can play on his back foot against Diego Schwartzman and get away with it because you just have a little bit more time for the ball to come at you and you have a little bit more time to work yourself into rallies. Djokovic hits a big enough ball, but most importantly, a precise enough ball that if you're on your back foot, you're just going corner to corner to corner to corner. And there's one person who can, ex- or maybe two, because I'd throw Nadal in there still, who execute with the precision of just, you're going to be on a rope for the entire match if you're on your back foot. And like, those are the only two people who I think execute that game plan well enough that they can really hurt Medvedev when he's on his back foot. Like, I agree with you. It's an overused saying. At the same time, it always applies to Novak Djokovic. Yeah, and I guess that, that that's one of the points that we're both making with our lists is yeah. we're, I'm, we're both saying Medvedev, you're saying Zverev as exceptions, but if you want to pick someone who, who can beat Djokovic, it's not someone who's favored to beat Djokovic. It's someone who will play a game that can beat him that you know, eventually one of them is going to win one of these matches, and whether it's Sitsipas or Bublik or or whoever, like it's not, these guys aren't going to be five and zero against Djokovic by the end of the season, but they might be one and four instead of zero and five. That's the best we can hope for. I mean, are we sure? Sh- no, I, I agree with you. I was just sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, I was just going to say, that, and I know there's legions of of potentially angry Djokovic fans out there. We're not actually hoping for Djokovic to lose. I know I just said that. I just mean in terms of this exercise, uh, that they're the players most likely to do it. I'm not hoping for anybody to lose. I like well, all players, especially your favorite, <laughs> except for your favorites. Sorry, I don't like your favorite. I like everybody else. No, let's be clear. Arena Sabalenka, in. Everyone else, suspect on any given day. As long as they're not playing Sabalenka, you're a fan. Um, Jensen Brooksby, on the line. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, so that's the last name I wanted to bring up here. Um, (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Yeah. Uh, No, again, to the Djokovic fans out there, why do we do this exercise? Because I don't know if he's going to freaking lose the rest of this year, Jeff. Like... It's a joke. It's an absolute joke. He's 34 years old. Again, the the genesis of this exercise, and I promise I'm going to let you go because I've kept you a little bit longer here, but just the final thought is we started out with, okay, well, what does it take to beat Novak Djokovic? And it was like, well, what, are we going to just talk about three characteristics? And it's like, let, let's try and put some names. Let's try and put some pers- some people behind that. And it's like, it's a futile exercise. Like, when you're talking Sasha Bublik in your top five and you're not trying to make people laugh, like, you're legitimately trying to make the case, like, no, that high variance takes it to you, at least plays on his terms, is what you need because if you're just playing a normal tennis match, you're not going to beat him. And, like, again, we were dead serious. Like, he is on my list. I will show you. Know, I'll, I'll happily tweet out the list. And, like, that speaks to the fact that... I, I guess the final thought, does he lose again, Jeff? Does he sweep all five titles, Olympics, U.S. Open? At that point, if he wins the U.S. Open, I feel like you shut it down for the year. You're like, I'm good. I'm not playing tennis till 2022, everyone. I'm sorry. You next geners, go have fun. Um, but your thoughts on where he ends this season and just, again, perspective on the history he's making. Yeah. I, 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 earlier on, I was trying to get inside his head to explain to, to think of why my gut says it's better to play the Olympics than not. But I, I, I see the reasoning behind shutting it down after the U S open. And if there's ever a time for a player on the ATP to do that, it would be this year if he wins until then. But I just don't see him doing it. Cause in the past he's, has he been the most aggressive scheduler of the big four after the U S open? I, 
I'm not. I, I don't know. Him and Murray. It, it, I would say it just depended who needed to chase more points. Like he and Murray were always. I mean, Murray must have played the late Asia swing over and over and over again, and always made that late run. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, so definitely the big three. He's the one who yeah. has always played deep. And you're right. They're chasing points. So maybe there were more seasons where it mattered to Djokovic than the other guys. I. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm but, thinking like 06 Federer. I'm like thinking of him back in those days, a little bit baggy clothing, the headband rocking and rolling. I definitely can see him in some Shanghai Masters YouTube videos that I've watched. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, and they, they've all had years where they go play a 250 or something. I mean, yeah. Federer won Bangkok early in his career when that still existed as a tournament. So it, it happens. I just think historically if you said you know if roger federer wins the u.s open this year he should shut it down it's like of course he's gonna shut it down i don't care if they you know organize a special tournament for him in basel in place of the one they canceled like he's not playing after the u.s open if he wins it if nadal wins it then yeah it's over for him he might he might enter everything and then pull out at the last minute but he's not playing after the u.s open but Djokovic, i don't see it and i mean maybe he won't play vienna like was it last year he played vienna or two years ago um I don't think he'd do that, but I think he'll enter Paris. Maybe he'll think about playing Paris. He definitely played the tour finals. Um, whether he should, yeah, I don't know. If he if he wins everything, that would be awfully tempting to, to call it good. But I I really like this scenario I've dreamed up where he wins the Olympics, goes and tries to stay with it and plays in Canada, loses early in Canada, and then wins Cincinnati in the U.S. Open. Maybe he doesn't play Canada. Maybe maybe I should even say probably he doesn't play that tournament. So maybe that's all moot. But I feel like there's one more loss in here. Maybe it's to Jensen Brooks being Cincinnati. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Wild but, card first round. I, I, God willing, they at least play at this point. Yeah. I mean, and there's only so much time. This has got to happen. <laughs> Um, I hope Brooksby doesn't take time off after winning this Newport title. He's going to need to rest. It'll be, well, he's already in the Hall of Fame. So at that point, call it quits. Yeah, it's already in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, I think there'll be a loss, but I don't think it'll matter. And that's the other funny thing. At this point, almost no matter what Djokovic does, it, he's basically guaranteed year in number one. If he wins one of these last two tournaments, he's done something historic and amazing. So, I mean, I don't know. If, if, if you trust the numbers, I think my U.S. Open forecast is going to say 50% chance for Djokovic from day one. Um and my Olympics forecast is maybe going to say, I don't know, 55 or 60, depending on who all the withdrawals turn out to be. So the odds are not in favor of him running the table. I mean, if we just look at this purely as if they're a bunch of tennis playing robots. So uh, let's go with that. Let's say he's probably not going to win both. But I mean, if it weren't for this arbitrary set of important tournaments, then who cares? I mean, what an incredible season. He's going to win a lot more matches against good players and he's probably going to end up one of the with one of the best seasons of all time and it might be the best season of all time by a player above 30 so i mean you can't really lose if you look at it that way it's just so crazy that the expectations are so high that he could have a disappointing rest of the season it's bizarre yeah it's silly it's absolutely silly and you know again the legitimate question i guess we'll end here more likely to hit 20 honestly 24 at this point serena or Djokovic? Mm, Djokovic I agree and like I don't think it's well it's close but I don't think it's particularly close like I just if if I tell you Djokovic he's got like again if I tell you he wins two in the next two years you'd be like that's too low 
If I'm like, all right, well, what about three? You'd still probably say, oh, that's too low. And that's the crazy part. When you're – he's 30, 40 years old, and there's not any noticeable decline. Like he's winning 85% of his first serves at Wimbledon. I don't know how you beat this version of Novak Djokovic. It's absolutely silly. And again, to your point, even if he doesn't win another match here in 2021, this the age 34 season will already go down as one of the best 30-plus seasons in tennis history. With all of that said, Jeff, again, a shout-out to you for all you guys do at Tennis Abstract. Listeners of this podcast know ELO ratings, top 15 clubs. They're incorporated into every podcast we do here at Crack Rackets. You're just you're a more well-informed fan if you are using the resources provided by our friends over at Tennis Abstract. Unless... You looked at one of the forecasts this week that had Anna Konya as your favorite to win the title, Jeff. She gets knocked out by Putin Seva in the round of 16. I was devastated. I was like, no, the forecast. She was she was really – she was. How about that? Yeah, she was, she was the favorite to start the tournament. That is – I know. That was to me like the ultimate outlier. I was like, whoa. I, I was like, something's up here. Yeah, in in that second tier of of women, there's some there's some like you pointed out at the outset, there's some huge mismatches between the rankings and the elos. And huh, I didn't realize Konya was quite that high, or everyone else was so low or equal. But yeah, I mean, this is aside from maybe Sitsipas in Hamburg, this is this is the week for upsets. I mean, the fields are either deep or weak depending on which which word you pick there's 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 names in the second round third round that i of some of these tournaments that most people won't know at all mm-hmm. no i i agree with you again it's i mean it's post wimbledon you host six tournaments yeah these fields are going to get funky uh, and they certainly have this week. But, you know, again, for anyone trying to work out who are the favorites, what should I expect, what are the percentages, give me some more statistics. Tennisabstract.com is the place to turn. And, of course, Jeff, before we let you go, i got to ask you, what do you guys have coming down the pipeline? Any fun things I should be expecting beyond the 5,000 words on why returns, play, uh, returns in play doesn't necessarily equal success as a returner? I should have stopped while I was ahead because the first time you mentioned that, you said 2,500 I know. Words. I doubled. You know, I, I was hoping you wouldn't notice I doubled it there. <laughs> yes. Let's let's try to sneak a changed number past me. That's not going to fly. <laughs> um, no, I'm actually – I'm taking a bit of a post-Wimbledon break. I'm not – I'm taking two weeks off the Expected Points podcast, but I think we should be back with daily podcasts um, either right before or for the Olympics, and I'm – Digging back into the historical stuff, I don't know if you, you or your listeners have seen the news, but um, but Shirley Fry, the career Grand Slam winner, died this week, age 94. Rest in peace, Shirley Fry. But that I was already back working on the the 1930s because um, I've got I've got historical data for women's tournaments back to 1939 now on the site, and that's one of my my pet projects is um, to take all the information that's out that's out there in newspapers and annuals and all that stuff and get it on the site. So there's one organized source for women's tennis history way back into the the pre-open era, which is just endlessly fascinating to me. Um, I posted a couple of pictures from newspapers of Shirley Fry from 1939 and 1941 when she was a, a a junior high school girl winning city and state tournaments at age 12, 13, 14. Um, very different era from today, but very fascinating. So I have haven't blogged too much about that, but you can you can dig those up on the site, and I have sometimes tweeted about them too. So 
that's kind of what I'm focused on during during all these weeks when Yulia Pretenziva is maybe going to win a tour level title. I'm I'm here for that, but maybe not for the second round of that. So it's a good time to to take take a little break and take stock of things and be ready for the Olympics. Next time we have you on the show, let's do a deep dive into the 30s and 40s. Give me the I, I would love to hear about the hidden gems because I imagine some of the data you're accumulating or just some of the records or random. Fa- I mean, I see you tweet it out every so often are just fascinating. Yeah, it's 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 wild. And and one thing that a lot of times when commentators or, or pundits will acknowledge the pre-open era, they'll always say, oh, it's such such a different time. You can't really compare. And it's true. I mean, the, the players weren't professional. Their their motivations were different. Their the amount of time they could put into the game were different, especially for women, because men could they were essentially trying to win Wimbledon. So Jack Kramer would call and they could go pro. But the women didn't have that so much. Only a few players ever, ever really had a successful financial pro tour. So they were just playing for the fun of it or just playing for, for the glory. And it's easy to write that off as saying, well, the level of play must have been so low. Must And that's absolutely not true. I mean, it's so many players were, were so invested in the game and, um, the tour looked not that different than how it looks now. I mean, players weren't traveling as much, but they were, I- I'm shocked at how much even second tier players were traveling when they were doing this all by train. I, one of the things I posted on Twitter this morning, it was in Shirley Fry's local paper the year she turned 14. She traveled 3,600 miles by train to play tennis tournaments around the Midwest and East uh, as a 14 year old. And I mean, that's just, mind-boggling to me i mean that she probably spent more time traveling just in terms of hours spent than than players spend now because it just took so much more time to get around uh but yeah i would love to do that as you can tell already i will i will talk about this until (laughs) you you cut off my microphone so let's do it well that's a trait you and i have in common so yes i'm very very much in favor of that but no uh again jeff always appreciate you taking the time i know uh people know the website tennisabstract.com but you mentioned uh no expected points over the next few weeks but we can expect the pods to keep rocking and rolling yeah at, at some pace or other it will they'll keep coming just maybe not immediately let's say yeah, that's fair. all I'm saying is if you need someone to steer the expected point ship uh, ship for a week, you know where to find me. Uh, you know, awesome. I can find three minutes. I'm like, please, that's that that's a Tuesday. You know, um, that's the limit, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I always had a talk with my dad, and the good news is there is no way he listens to the hour twenty mark of a podcast. But I was chatting with him, and he was just like, you know, Alex, like. At first, I was a little bit apprehensive of what you were trying to do, but then I sat back and thought about it, and I was like, you've been giving me an hour-long monologue since you were 11. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, and you haven't listened to a single one of them since. And he was like, true, true, this is true. And so, uh, no, I – again, I, I always appreciate you taking the time to come on these podcasts, so anything I can do to help, I appreciate it as well. People know Match Charting Project, the more data in there, the better it is for all of us. But sincerely, as always, thank you for all you do. Be safe. Be healthy. Always a pleasure to get in the chat with you, Jeff. Thanks, Alex. Likewise. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. 
Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Tennis Abstract's Jeff Sackman. Again, a huge thank you to him, the team at TA, for all they do for us tennis fans. If you want to be a more intelligent fan moving forward, if you want to see if what you believe is happening on court is matched by the numbers we see unfolding as well. And again, it's always good to have some analytics to back any arguments you're trying to make with your friends. You can find all of the best stats on TennisAbstract.com. I would not be able to do these podcasts without it as a resource. So again, a sincere thank you to Jeff for not only all he does at TA, but for taking the time to chat with us today. Of course, it's been a really fun week here on the Great Shot Podcast. I've had a lot of fascinating conversations. If you missed anything at the challenger level, you can go catch up on it all with our friends Damian Kust, Jakob Bobro. Of course, I had David Kane on to talk about our most interesting WTA players here down the summer hardcourt stretch. I'm going to be doing the same exercise with Racket Magazine's Jerry Nathan uh, next week, so be on the lookout for that podcast here on the GSP. Did had a really fun pod talking American tennis and State of the Union-ish with David Gertler. That'll come out next week. Of course, we're recapping all of the action day in, day out, happening on tour on the mini break podcast. So rest assured, we've got all of you listeners uh, covered. It is a stressful time as a tennis fan with all of the action that's unfolding. We're trying to do our best to make it a little less stressful for you. Unpack all of the many details we see unfold day in, day out. And of course, again, you can find all of that content on our website, crackrackets.com. Like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, the mini break podcast, Cracked Interview. Podcast where this week we spoke with Florida NCAA team and singles champion Sam Riffis. We've got the doubles champions coming on next week, Emma Navarro in the queue. Hopefully, we'll get the coaches on soon as well. So, of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to all of the podcasts. And if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout out as always to our super producers, Max Leader and Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job they do day in, day out. A shout out as well to our friends over at Turn of Tennis. Remember, contact sales at uniquesports.com or call 800-554-3707. With all of that said, for our wonderful guests, Tennis Abstracts, Jeff Sackman, our super producers, Fligner and Westoff, our friends over at Turn of Tennis, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot. And we will see you all next week. Thanks, everyone. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. 